I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geiser and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Welcome back, everybody, to the SLP Book Club. We're excited to kick off our new book, Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. We are liking it so much as we start to read it. Chapter one has been great, and we cannot wait to get into it. But first, we are going to play Like It, Love It, Leave It. So stay tuned for chapter one. And uh, we hope this makes you laugh a little bit. Okay. I feel like I have a little surprise for you on this one. Okay. Like it, love it, leave it. Beats, earbuds, those around the shoulder headphones. Okay. So Beats by Dre, I've never even owned a pair. Those are the like over the ear, right? Yeah. Okay. But I feel like they're saying, do you like a big over the ear headphone? Like, let's just say big, big over the ear, earbuds. Or the the ones that go around your shoulders. Okay. I'm going to go with love over-the-ear headphones, like earbuds, leave those weird around-the-shoulder headphones. Okay. Um, (laughs) But I have some some info to give about this decision-making. I want to know, we we need context because I know when we podcast, you wear that over the... Right. Those are the ones you said you like or you I love? I love them. And I don't wear these okay. for the podcast because I love them. I just wear them because they came with my setup. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I have to love them because earbuds... Okay, here comes, here comes a confession. Uh-oh. <laughs> I feel like I have maybe weirdly shaped earbuds ear canals okay so sometimes the earbuds it's like they never really fit in my ears the way they should even when they come with different like inserts that you can put on smaller bigger whatever yeah it's just like sometimes they pop out I feel like I could never exercise with an earbud in anything jumping or running they would just pop out of my ear so even though I use them most frequently like if I'm walking I'll use them or whatever I feel I have to choose over the ear headphones because I never have that problem they're more comfortable Okay. But earbuds, you know, are very convenient. So I like them. And then yeah. the shoulder one, I don't know. That's so weird. Okay. Well, <laughs> I have a confession. First, I'm going to say, 
love earbuds, like over the ear headphones, and I'm going to leave the around the shoulder. But I used to work out wearing the around the shoulder with like the full piece that would go in your ear and around your ear. Do you know what I'm talking about? Very cool. Yeah, that's very cool of you. <laughs> like I could pull a pair out for you. I used to wear them to the gym. I don't know why, but it was because I had that issue with the earbuds always falling out. I used to be a runner. I would run on the treadmill. I'd run outside and I'd constantly be like right. shoving my earbud back into my ear. And every pair I tried was the same, especially one ear. Like one ear was fine and the other one was like, nope, just dispelling it. That's me. My left. So yeah, I like found these weird around the shoulder ones that I just felt really stayed in place while I worked out and like lifted weights. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I just really leaned into it for a while, even knowing that like at the gym, I looked really strange, but whatever. Maybe you're a trendsetter. You don't even know it. I I will say we do have a few pairs of Beats by Dre in my home. And they are so comfortable. They're like so cushiony soft. But I can't do the podcast with them on because I don't like the sound of my... I just use these because I hear my voice normally, not like in my headphones. You know, I I think my takeaway from that is I'm really glad to know I'm not the only one with like weird ears, you know? Yeah. I don't work out like... um, I don't like run or anything vigorous with my AirPods in. And aside about that is I could never remember the term AirPod and I would always call them AirBuds. <laughs> and then I just get made fun of because, you know, AirBud is that dog that plays basketball. <laughs> that beloved dog. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he's a star. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> he is a superstar. I give him all due respect, but it's not the same. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, I have to really think hard when I say that. Yeah. Um, All right. Rock, paper, scissors. Like it, love it, leave it. (laughs) Scissors. Love scissors. Love scissors. (laughs) Like rock, leave paper. I know that all of... We're talking about in the context of Rochambeau. (laughs) Yeah, like what's your go-to? Like what do you like? What do you love? Okay. I'm always going to go... I mean, I feel like I'm giving this away. Like somebody is going to challenge me and they're going to know that they need to go rock because I'm always going to go scissors. I love going scissors. And maybe that's because I do feel that paper is the weakest. So in my mind, I go, I'm going scissors because like it's going to get that paper. But of course, if they go, I mean, I don't know why. I don't know why. Rock's my second choice. I also feel that it's very powerful. And then paper is just so weak. Like who goes paper on the first one? (laughs) paper's flimsy yeah what's up with paper oh my gosh okay I I respect that I think my answers are similar I think I'm gonna go love rock I think I do rock okay so you would beat me love rock like scissors also leave paper but I also feel like as I'm thinking about this more it has to do with your hand shape like it feels just easier to keep rock and it's like whoa that's really surprising like you don't see it coming yeah you expect your hands gonna do something else but just he's like the rock <laughs> paper maybe the way your hand flies out it's more of a giveaway yeah and then like scissors you know you just shoot them out yeah <laughs> I'm not saying my strategy has been effective for me. No. I mean, whose is? You're always taking a risk, no matter what. You take a chance. A risk, but... 
<laughs> I do feel like I have a recommendation for SLPs. I used to read this book with my middle elementary school kids called The Legend of Rock, Paper, Scissors, and it's really cute. Ooh, it's so good. Cool. It has lots of good vocabulary, and it's like a fun okay. story about rock, paper, scissors. That's my little rec. Okay. Well, if anybody has a good strategy for rock, paper, scissors, let us know. <laughs> yeah. Something that's like your go-to always works. Love to know. All right, Adrian. Like it, love it, leave it. Cold, cough, night sweats. <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. This was the one I was going to go with. I was so stuck between this one and rock, paper, scissors. So I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I've good. been dying to share my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> we got to know. <laughs> Like, which one do I love? <laughs> okay. Love a cough, like night sweats, leave a cold. Okay. Okay. And this is because of how my body deals with these things. Uh-huh. So I never, you know, some people are like predisposed to chest colds. Mm-hmm. Like people get coughs, especially if you have like had issues, you know, it's like it settles there. I never really get a cough like that. So that's why I'm going to say love cough, even though... My sister absolutely hates how I cough. Oh. She is so mean to me when I cough. I used to be that way with my mom. (laughs) And she tells me that. I'm trying to get a visual to go with this. (laughs) She tells me that. Um, She hates the way it sounds, of course. So she'll be like, God, your cough is so dry. Like, why do you cough like that? Just walk around coughing. I'm like, I don't know. I'm just coughing. And then she's like, you look like this. (laughs) Have you ever seen the cats that cough? And this is like a meme, I guess. Its tongue is out like this. <laughs> she says I look like that when I cough. <laughs> so rude. <laughs> Have you ever heard of anything ruder in your life? I'm like, how dare you? And now I'm so self-conscious every time I cough that I'm like. <laughs> so that's why I love a cough. And I like a night sweat because it's kind of here and there. It comes, it goes. But colds, I hate them. They linger. They're horrible. It makes it hard to do our job. Yeah. When we have a cold because it's hard to talk. I always get a super sore throat. So that's like miserable. And then I blow my nose a lot. And my sister also makes fun of how much I blow my nose. Well, I was going to say love night sweats. Yeah, love it. (laughs) Like a cold, leave a cough. But, you know, cold and cough are are like intertwined for me. I'm the person. I get the cold and then the cough is going to be there for a month afterwards. Horrible. I've got to leave a cough because when I have kind of like you're dry, when I have a cough and I keep feeling that urge to cough and have to do it, it just gets, it like gets on my own nerves. I get, I can't even stand the, the sound of it. Yeah. My dog is so terrified of my coughing. <laughs> he gets up and leaves the bed if I start coughing in the middle of the night so like I have to have a humidifier on because the air is really dry up here right now it's really dry and so if I start coughing a little bit with a dry throat in the middle of the night even though I'm not sick my poor dog is just like trying to escape wow so we're just (laughs) torturing people yeah and you know sometimes I get a little like it's hard my throat gets a little clogged up I think related to drinking a lot of half and half in my coffee not sure but then it drives my fiance he's like what's happening in your throat what are you doing with your throat (laughs) that clearing the throat which is also I think a little psychological like once you start going don't clear your throat then you like feel like you have to (laughs) what's going on with your throat (laughs) 
Yeah, I know the vibe. Uh, oh, that's I mean, let's be honest. We're going to leave all of these. But but yeah, also a cold ever since COVID. It's like you feel like if you have a cold, you shouldn't even be at the store. You know that feeling yeah. like you're like, oh my gosh, if someone hears me cough or sneeze, they're going to think I'm spreading disease to everyone, you know? I say, let it fly. Who cares? <laughs> actually, no, I don't say that because I don't want one. So actually cover it up, everyone. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for this very informative. <laughs> like it, love it, leave it. Um, stay tuned as we come back to discuss the introduction and chapter one of Uniquely Human. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing, and I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at theslpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP Book Club. So in the introduction, Dr. Prezant explains that an autism diagnosis can be really overwhelming and disorienting for parents. So he kind of starts by explaining several situations where like typically confident people that he knows, maybe even people who've reached like the highest level of success with their own field are reduced to kind of like not knowing how to make any decisions at all for their children because they now have this autism diagnosis. And these people will reach out to Dr. Prezant for guidance because once they get the diagnosis, they often go to the internet and kind of try to do some research. And then that leads them to be even more confused and paralyzed and overwhelmed just by the different like controversies and opinions about autism. So some stats for you, according to the U.S. Center for Disease Control, as many as one in 44 or 2.3% of school age children are on the autism spectrum and 15 to 20% of the general population has a neurodivergent condition, which can be anything from autism to ADHD, learning disabilities or mental health conditions. 
So parents are often paralyzed by decisions they need to make for their autistic children. Like what therapist should they have? What school should they go to? What diet should they be on? Which medications? And the options really go on and on and they change as the child matures and gets older even though the amount of questions remain pretty overwhelming. So Dr. Pazant emphasizes that the children with autism do not need to be fixed and their behaviors aren't meaningless or non-functional or random or deviant or bizarre or any of these things that we've been told. Autism is just a different way of being human and we don't need to change them. We actually need to change the way that we understand them and interact with them. So we need to change our attitudes or behaviors and the type of support that we provide for autistic people. One way to do this and to get to the bottom of behavior in general is to ask why. So instead of just trying to eliminate behaviors and get the child to be quiet or sit quietly with no hand flapping, no echolalia, is that we should just be asking why. And I just want to pause right here and say, I hope that you listened to our last book, which was Beyond Behaviors, by Dr. Mona Delahook, because there is so much overlap with what Dr. Prezant talks about and what she talks about, although Dr. Delahook kind of gives it a more like scientific spin. She has a little bit more research to support what she's talking about, but the books go together so well. And reading this book, just chapter one, I felt like, wow, I have such a better understanding of what he's talking about because I have this really great foundational knowledge about faulty neuroception and about the pathways from beyond behaviors. So if that sounds like something you're interested in and you missed our last book, I really suggest you go back and listen to that because there is so much in common between the two of them and I'm feeling so much more educated. Yeah. You should too. (laughs) So Dr. Prezant points out that a lot of the behavior, if not all of the behavior that we see in autistic people is also seen in neurotypical people. So it's just that we're not used to seeing these behaviors so persistently or in people who are older. Roz Blackburn, somebody he talks about a lot, I'm assuming through the book, but at least through the intro in chapter one, is an autistic person who talks a lot about her own journey with autism. And she explains that when she jumps up and down or flaps her hands, she's not really doing anything differently than somebody who's just won the lottery or somebody on a game show. The only difference is that she gets excited more easily than other people do. And maybe the setting is not expected. Like if somebody's on a game show and they're jumping up and down, you're like, of course, you know. But the purpose of this book is to look at functional behaviors as a range of strategies for autistic people to cope, to adapt, to communicate and deal with things that are happening in our world that feel overwhelming, frightening, or too exciting for them. And Dr. Prezant's going to show how it's better to enhance communication abilities, teach life skills, build coping strategies, and offer support to help stop behaviors that are concerning for us. So we should be asking ourselves questions like, what's motivating the behavior? What purpose does the behavior serve? How is this person feeling? Does it actually help the person, even though it looks different to somebody who's neurotypical? And hopefully this book is going to help us all to see what it means to be uniquely human. So chapter one is all about asking why. And Dr. Prezant opens up the chapter with a story about Jesse. So Jesse is an eight-year-old boy that Dr. Prezant encountered in a small New England school district. Everybody told him that Jesse was the worst student they had ever encountered, that he was stubborn, non-compliant, super aggressive. 
He struggled with severe social anxiety, extreme sensitivity to touch, and had a hard time processing language. He did not have any verbal language, really, as far as words go. He communicated via grunts and would either push people away from him or lead them over to whatever he wanted. He would kick and scratch and bite and had fits that were so severe that it took three to four adults to kind of hold him down and move him to like a calm down room. The administrators were treating him like he was being willful, uncooperative, non-compliant, but his mom understood that his behaviors were just a way for him to communicate. And what he was telling everybody was that he was confused, he was in pain, he was agitated, and he was fearful. So there was no focus on providing a way of communication for Jesse with the team at his current school. And basically, the first thing they wanted to accomplish was just controlling his behavior and getting him to be compliant. So when Dr. Prezant finally met Jesse, he saw a boy who was scared, anxious, and often experiencing fight or flight reactions. Again, this ties into beyond behaviors because we know that that fight or flight anxiety response is typically faulty neuroception. So this is what happens when people misunderstand autistic behaviors and try to manage the behavior instead of asking why is you get a situation where you're focusing more on being calm and being a good student instead of giving him any way to communicate. We say that somebody's autistic because we see certain characteristics in their behavior. So these can look like difficulty communicating, trouble developing relationships, sensory sensitivities, and things like restricted interests and behaviors, repetitive speech, and rocking, arm flapping, and spinning. So just focusing on reducing these behaviors in an effort to make autistic people indistinguishable from neurotypical people is problematic. It treats them like they are the sum of their deficits and a problem that needs to be fixed. And trying to eliminate these behaviors doesn't actually work, and it seems to make things worse. So autistic adults who were subjected to compliance training approaches as children have now started to talk more about how difficult and traumatic it was. And overall, as a group, they also tend to have higher rates of anxiety. So I really like this quote from the autistic author Paul Collins. I think it explains the situation really well. He said, autistic people are the ultimate square pegs. And the problem with pounding a square peg into a round hole is not that the hammering is hard work. It's that you are destroying the peg. So it's much easier to just ask why and try to target the reason behind the behavior instead of just eliminate it, which is stressful for everybody involved. The answer is that the person is experiencing some level of emotional dysregulation. So underlying neurological differences in the way autistic people's brains are wired impacts their ability to remain emotionally regulated. When we're emotionally regulated, we are more available for learning and engaging with others. We're more alert and focused and prepared to take part in daily life. So difficulty staying well-regulated emotionally or physiologically should be a defining feature of autism, even though it wasn't listed in all those features that I just went over. So I think Dr. Prezant was saying that that is really serious. If you're seeing a student who is not well-regulated emotionally or physiologically, it might be autism. But unfortunately, professionals have really focused on just resulting behaviors instead of the root cause. And things that can make autistic individuals less able to stay well-regulated are difficulty with communication, chaotic environments, confusing people who talk or move too quickly, unpredictability and unexpected change, and excessive worry about things that are not certain. 
There are also associated challenges like sensory sensitivities to touch and sound, motor and movement disturbances, sleep deprivation, allergies, and gastrointestinal issues. So everybody can become dysregulated when something unexpected happens. It happens to everybody. If something interrupts your morning routine or maybe like a road that you normally take on your commute is closed, you can feel thrown off for the rest of the day. I think that's happened to everybody. But because of their neurological wiring, autistic people are less equipped to deal with it and have less innate coping strategies overall. So when people are emotionally dysregulated, it can affect them in different ways. And the reactions can be immediate and impulsive. An autistic child may not want to enter a loud gym and not because they're being willful and they don't want to participate in gym, but maybe because the quality of the sound or the amount of people are overwhelming. And it's our job to be a detective to examine and consider the clues in front of us to figure out what is triggering a particular reaction. So I think throughout the chapter, although he doesn't explicitly state it, he talks about doing a lot of observation and charting to see when the behaviors are most present, because that can give you some clues, you know, oh, if it's happening the most often during unstructured time, like recess or transitions, then you know, maybe that's increasing their anxiety. You can ask yourself, is whatever is making them dysregulated internal? Is it external? Is it visible? Is it in the sensory realm? Maybe it's a traumatic memory of just something that happened that's causing them to go into that anxious fight or flight state. And it's really not easy for kids to identify this. So it's up to us as adults to figure it out for them. And most of the behaviors that are considered autistic behaviors aren't really deficits because their strategies that these people are using to regulate themselves emotionally and physiologically. So if they're helpful, they should really be considered a strength instead of something that needs to be eliminated. All human beings use rituals like dancing in order to soothe themselves, calm our minds and bodies and help us cope. So if you maybe take deep breaths or pace back and forth before you go up on stage, it would not be considered unusual somebody who was watching you would just be like, oh, you know, they're trying to calm themselves down before they go on stage. They're stressed out. There are many different routines even seen with like organized religion, repetitive prayers and body movements that are meant to help people get out of their bodies and enter a higher spiritual plane. We can also think of mindfulness practices like Tai Chi and yoga who use movement in their rituals to achieve more well-being in their lives. So autistic people also use comforting rituals of all kinds, and this can be anything from speaking in various patterns to carrying familiar items, opening and closing cabinet doors, or even lining up objects to create more predictability in their surroundings. And when autistic people are understimulated, they may want to increase their alertness by climbing, spinning, bouncing, swinging. And if they're overstimulated, they might want to calm themselves by pacing squeezing their fingers, staring at a fan, or saying the same thing over and over again. And Dr. Prezant points out that only in the field of autism is the word behavior used to mean something negative or stimming, um, which can all be used to refer to just repetitive self-stimulatory behavior. Now that we have more input from autistic adults, we're beginning to understand that stimming can be a way to help somebody feel calm or help them feel better when they're anxious or bored. And it can also be used because it's fun or enjoyable or creative in some way. So we need to rephrase stems and behaviors in our mind as strategies to deal with dysregulation. 
or to engage in something fun and grounding for the person. I've always thought that was funny too, that we're like, oh, they have a lot of behaviors, (laughs) but it just means like inappropriate behavior. Oh yeah. Okay. So that when you said, when you said he pointed that out, I was like, wait, behavior means something negative, like with kids with ADHD, but he means just the word, not like saying bad behavior. Just when you say behaviors. Behaviors. Okay. Like we have been seeing a lot of behaviors in the classroom. Oof. Yeah. And we're all guilty of doing that, right? Yeah. I know. Yeah. When an autistic person seeks sameness, it's a way for them to try to control their environment or the people around them. And it's a coping strategy. So this can look like maybe eating the same foods over and over, closing all the doors in the classroom, watching the same video over and over, or wanting to sit in the same exact chair, the same desk every single day. And Dr. Pizant points out that these repetitive behaviors are not really the same as obsessive compulsive disorder, which I think I've known a lot of kids, not a lot, but a handful of students where they had maybe more severe autistic tendencies and they were also diagnosed with OCD. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes those diagnoses do go hand in hand. And he's saying that OCD behavior is disruptive and rarely serves to make the person feel better. But with an autistic person, if they insist on lining things up or keeping things in a certain order, it's because they figured out that this helps them to emotionally regulate so they can be more engaged. So it's just a way to control the environment for them. Yeah. I think that I've thought in the past, like I used to have a student who liked to do things the same way with one of the activities that we did in speech and it involved little alphabet letters. He put them in and then he liked to lift the little alphabet cards and look at the backside because it had an image on it. So he would lift it, but then sometimes the letters would fall out, like the puzzle piece would fall off of the card and then he'd have to start back over. I remember being like, I get him because I have OCD and I would need to do that too. But maybe it is different than OCD because in OCD, you think like, oh, I have to do it this way or something bad will happen. That's how you're controlling your environment. Mm -hmm. And then if it goes wrong, you're like, oh my gosh, something bad's going to happen. I need to find something else I can do to counteract the effects of this going wrong. But for him, it's like, okay, that didn't feel good. It's not, I didn't do it the right way. I have to start over and have everything go the right way so that I feel calm. He's thinking, I need to calm my body. And if it didn't go right, I have to do it the right way, the way I like. So my body feels calm. Right. Right. So I'm seeing Dr. Prezant's distinction. Right. But before I didn't really see it. I didn't see the difference. Yeah. And like, I think that's really cool that you were able to understand at least what it means to want to do things repetitively. Mm -hmm. Because I think what Dr. Prezant is pointing out is like, for a lot of people, like I can't really relate to that. And I had a student who was kind of like minimally verbal, who would his like repetitive behaviors, he would like touch his nose multiple times while kind of like repeating things to Mm -hmm. himself. And to me, it looked like OCD because it just looked so like he had no control over it. And he had to do it a certain times and like when we were working, but I realized looking back, sitting with me in these individual sessions, working on these things that were kind of too hard for him because, you know, like there was a lot going on with his case in general, but The goals were just kind of too high. And I think it was really stressful for him. Yeah. And looking back on it, I'm like, wow, he must have just been experiencing anxiety. And that was what he needed to do to just have his body feel better, like you're talking about. Yeah. 
And it's always hard when we read these books and we think about these kids and we look back and we're like, I wish I had had this framework at the time, you know, to think about things that way. Yeah. But Dr. Prezant gives an example of a child who kept, I guess he had a little black rock that he liked. It's like smooth and black. And he kept it with him all the time, just the way a child would with a security blanket. And it helped to calm and regulate him. And one day he lost it. And the dad was like, so upset. And they tried all these other kinds of black rocks. And none of them were the same. And so eventually he did find a replacement, which was a ring of plastic keys. But it just goes to show sometimes they have these things that they really like. And uh, it probably just helps them to be regulated. Dr. Prezant also notes that it's really common for autistic people to mouth or chew or lick things as a way to regulate themselves. And a good solution could be replacing the items with maybe like a crunchy snack. I think he talked about carrot sticks or pretzels. The rubber tubes too. Yeah, those little rubber tubes on the necklace if they want to chew just so that they can get that same sensory input, but it's not like damaging your teeth the way chewing on a pencil does you know or i've had kids who chew on their shirt and then we've replaced it with the necklace that's what he talked about yeah like so their whole shirt was all wet and like scrunched up and stretched around the neck and the mom is like can we help because his shirts are all getting ruined right you know and then the answer was very simple like one of those little rubber chew tubes that the OT got him so yeah and I've seen them where they don't even have to look so obviously like a chewy or whatever they can look I mean they make those teething necklaces for babies that look kind of nice you know I think that I've seen them where it looks like a Lego or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know it's not like just that like very medical looking tube, tube. <laughs> like three-way tube <laughs> it'll look like something cute I don't know I know yeah so sometimes autistic people rely on another human being as the key to their emotional regulation and this is if you think about it in direct opposition to the thought that autistic people don't need or want relationships and Dr. Pizant tells a story about a young boy who developed an imaginary friend and that was his emotional regulatory strategy and a way to soothe himself in difficult moments. And I think once they started targeting his anxiety, his imaginary friend kind of like went away. Yeah. But he did talk about how he went to the classroom and talked to all the other kids. And they're like, that's his imaginary friend. He uses it when he feels scared. <laughs> they, they said his imaginary friend helps him because he has autism. Right. So they like helps totally understood. I thought that I was thought such that was a sweet, sweet story. Yeah. Me too. There were a lot of stories in here where I didn't really cover them because it wasn't like a case study. It was sort of just an aside. But yeah, he gives so much great like evidence to support what he's talking about. Just qualitative evidence. <laughs> yeah. And you know what I did, what I appreciate about this book, and I'll talk about it more in a, in a little bit when we're wrapping up, because I have read this book before. But you know, one of the issues we had with Beyond Behaviors was that a lot of the examples seem very tame. But Dr. Prezant really has right. been um, a consultant on some cases, like he really travels around and goes to 
so he's been to so many schools and really only works with autism. And he does give examples where, you know, like you can picture that kid. Right. Right. Being one of the more challenging kids that you've worked with on your caseload. And you go, Mm -hmm. okay, this is how he kind of investigated, figured out the why and was able to support the kid the best way. So I like his examples. They're very helpful. Yeah, I agree. Echolalia also serves many functions for autistic people, but especially emotional regulation. So if a child is asking over and over again, going swimming this afternoon, instead of saying like, oh, this child is just incessantly questioning me, we could ask, why does he need to do that? What is it serving for him? Maybe he needs things to be really predictable or he's trying to soothe his anxiety about not knowing what's coming up this afternoon. And people who talk all the time about one specific topic can also be showing signs of dysregulation. So they might have a hard time grasping subtle social cues, or maybe they're stressed out by how typical conversations can be unpredictable. And talking about one subject that they know a lot about might help them to feel in control. And the same can be said for children who ask the same questions over and over, despite knowing the answer. So this could be an effort to exert control or to increase predictability and sameness when they're feeling anxiety due to social conversation. But it also shows that the child wants to connect and stay socially engaged. And Dr. Prisant gave that little story about the some child he had worked with for a really long time, who was probably an adult by this point, who every time he would see him would say like, hi, Dr. Barry didn't you meet me for the first time when I was four years old at blah, 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 preschool? (laughs) (laughs) Every time, you know, it's sweet. I get how that just helps him to break the ice, but it gives him that control that he needs. Yeah. And it can be dangerous to view emotional regulation strategies from the perspective of a deficit checklist, especially when the strategy helps that person. So a lot of behavioral therapists view the strategies through the lens of pathology and fail to realize the true motivation that's causing the behavior. And then they blame the person for being non-compliant instead of realizing that the person is just successfully using an appropriate strategy, even though it might seem unconventional. So if we were to succeed at extinguishing certain behaviors, you're basically just tearing away a strategy that's working for them, helping them to stay regulated. And you're also telling somebody that what they're doing is wrong which can lead to low self-esteem, depression, and a sense that, you know, they're flawed or incompetent. And trying to eliminate a certain behavior also shows that we don't respect those people. So it can cause a situation where maybe the person feels like they're bad or they've screwed up if they engage in a behavior that is inappropriate. And I know that in Beyond Behaviors, Dr. Delahook talks a lot about how, you know, to set up these standards for kids where they really can't meet them, you know, to completely eliminate something to just be better when it's coming from a a deeper place that they might not even realize, you know, it's just really unfair. Yeah. And Dr. Prezant gives an example of an 11 year old girl named Lucy, whose school district felt she was really aggressive, she was extremely agitated, and she was prone to lunging and crying at the faces and necks of her teachers and therapists. So she would also scratch. And once Dr. Prezant observed her, he figured out that she only did these behaviors when her teacher or her therapist would really abruptly change course in whatever task they were doing. So if she was in speech and she's working on maybe some 
picture cards and they're identifying things. And then all of a sudden the therapist writes down her name and says, like, show me your name. That change in the routine um, would cause her to be really highly anxious and feel like the situation was suddenly out of control. So this would trigger her and then she would lunge or grab or scratch. And it wasn't really aggressive behavior. It was just more of like a protest and a plea for support and for some understanding during a moment that was really confusing for her. So at this point, she was pretty dysregulated and approaching a state of panic. Adults can also be a cause of dysregulation for autistic people. So something as simple as trying to keep a child in a social situation for just five more minutes or just two more math problems can be all it takes. And sometimes the most important thing that any adult can do is just to acknowledge and validate that an autistic person's feelings of dysregulation are present. But sometimes it's really easy to overlook that. So Dr. Prezant shares a story of an eight-year-old boy named James who really loved to go to the gym, it gave him a lot of opportunity to relax and move his body. But one day the gym was being used for class pictures. And so James couldn't have his normal gym that day. So this disruption to his regular schedule caused him to have a meltdown. It ended up with him curled up underneath a table in a conference room. And Dr. Prezant kind of crawled under the table, gave him a beanbag chair that he liked to sit in and awaited stuffed animal and sat with him while calmly speaking to him. And he just said, you know, it seems like you're upset because you can't go to the gym today. Name it to tame it. <laughs> Whole grandchild. <laughs> and told him that everybody was feeling sad because they knew he was upset. And slowly he calmed down and asked if, you know, can I go to the gym tomorrow? And Dr. Prezant said yes. And then James calmed down and voluntarily walked out of the room. And I think he went on a little walk before going back to class. So the staff had originally been told to ignore him when he was having a meltdown, don't engage and reinforce these negative behaviors. But after seeing what Dr. Prezant did, they all said like, oh, he calmed down so much faster than when we ignore him. So what James really needed the most was somebody to just be present, to listen, acknowledge and validate his feelings. And often the key to reassuring and helping autistic children when they're dysregulated is to stay well-regulated ourselves. So that means when we're talking to them, we need to have measured emotional reactions, maintain appropriate social distances, don't move really quickly and get up in their face. We want our voices to be calm and steady. And this overall tells us that maybe instead of trying to change how an autistic person reacts to us, we need to pay closer attention to how we are reacting to those people. And then Dr. Prezant talks again about Jesse, who we heard about at the beginning of the chapter. He was the one who was really physically aggressive to illustrate how a supportive team can build trust with a child. So Jesse had switched schools at this point. He was no longer at that school that was trying to really reinforce compliance. And at his new school, they wanted to help him be not so defensive and confused and scared. And the new team, first of all, provided him with a PEX system. So this is pictures exchange communication system. So he had a way to express himself now. And they gave him choices all the time to make sure that he felt a little bit of autonomy. 
And he was also given a visual schedule. So he knew what to expect. He knew what was coming up. And they also had an occupational therapist who sounds really amazing, who worked with him to create a plan so that he could regulate his body due to his severe sensory issues. So Jesse found deep pressure really calming. And I guess the OT would sit with him before school and like massage his hands with lotion and like massage his forehead. And that was really helpful to calmly start the day off. And then also the PEC system, they developed a communication book for him. So he had a lot of options and he could select strategies that were regulating for him, like running or listening to music. And now that he had a way to communicate, he was engaging a lot more with peers and teachers. And for the first time in his life, he was excited about school. So the main difference is that his new team showed him, we're here to support you and not control you. And this allowed him to have more autonomy and the ability to make choices within a structured environment. He goes on to tell the whole story about Jesse. So not just his elementary school experience, but eventually he went to middle school. He had two different jobs there on campus. He worked with a neurotypical peer to collect recycling paper from classrooms, and he also delivered mail. So at that point, he had an AAC device and he or an alternative and augmentative communication device, and he used it to generate speech and have short conversations with adults. And most importantly, he wasn't melting down or hitting or resisting or bruising himself anymore. So he went from an unpredictable and aggressive child who teachers would avoid in the hallway to an engaged volunteer in high school. He was an assistant to the chemistry teacher and had a little visual guide to help him keep like the beakers and the test tubes organized. And the teacher said the lab had never been so organized. So love that for Jesse. And the new team succeeded because instead of trying to change him, they listened, observed, asked why, and changed their approach based on what they saw and heard. They recognized he was dysregulated. They were detectives. They figured out what was making him feel that way. And then they gave him the tools that he needed to cope and have some control over his own life. And they also helped him to understand that people cared for him and that they were worth him trusting. So this approach can be helpful for any child, really. But I loved the takeaways here. And I just felt like Dr. Pizant really out there doing the Lord's work, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was thinking when we read or when we were reading this first chapter, kind of like, oh, is this too similar to the book we just read? Like, are we just going to be kind of doing the same thing? Right. But it really feels, you know, that was not a book about autism. It had a chapter on autism. It was really just about behavior we see in all children. And this feels like such a celebration of people with autism. It's like, just really understanding, appreciating, respecting, you know, it's it's just such a refreshing look at autism. And like I said, I've already read it before and it came out like at a time when I really needed it. I never really went into being a speech therapist to work with kids with autism, but I found myself at two schools where one had five or six autism classes right. and the other had a moderate to severe autism class which had like five or six kids in it and a lot of adult help and so that class was always there was always like one kid that really really challenged me right and I just read this book right in the middle of you know my caseload just 
exploding, having so many kids with autism. And it helped me develop this understanding and create kind of systems, you know, like the story. I remember reading that story of Lucy and thinking of a student I had and realizing that even though I had a visual schedule for her showing what was going to happen, I was using a timer on my phone that would go off and she was like reacting to the sound of it. And so then I found a visual timer on my phone that had no sound because she was so distracted looking at my phone going like, oh gosh, when's it going to happen? When's the sound going to happen? That she couldn't focus on what we were doing. You know, it was like I I was making these little adjustments based on reading this and trying to give her more predictability, more control. I started talking in a really Mm -hmm. soothing, calm way because I just was recognizing things that I was doing that were the cause of her dysregulation. (laughs) You know, you were being a detective. Yeah. I mean, it just, (laughs) once you look at things that just one chapter can totally change the way you view a student that you've been laying up at night thinking about, you know, right? because we do have kids like that, that are on our minds all the time. And I'm excited to read it again. I read it years ago. So I'm really happy. Yeah, well, it's my first time. And I agree. I'm like loving that it's focusing on autism. And like I said, building on the foundation of beyond behaviors, which I think the two really go together well. So this is so thrilling. And I can't wait to learn more. This is gonna be great. I wanted to talk really briefly about our Patreon. If you join the Patreon for $3 a month, you get all of our episodes a little bit early and they will have no ads in them. And then also I've mentioned before, I'm putting one resource a month from my Teachers Pay Teachers store onto the Patreon. And you're gonna be able to download the one from the previous month and the current month. So they are gonna kind of (laughs) disappear. They're not just gonna all be their whole library. So for last month for October, I put up my Halloween search and say, it's like a no prep print and go activity for articulation and language kids. And then for this month, November, I'll be adding my print and go turkey articulation craft activity that will be available soon for you to download if you're a Patreon member. So check it out link is in the show notes. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next time for chapter two from Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Pazant. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.